So we're going to be in uh, Luke chapter 4, verse 31. And last week, if you remember, we technically left Jesus and he was being chased out of his hometown of Nazareth. An angry mob had intended to shove him off the cliff upon which their village was built. And Jesus' friends and neighbors, the people that he spent 30 years basically with, they weren't opposed to his message, but his methods. They were upset that this well-liked local boy, this man who had stepped up and declared himself to be Israel's long-awaited Messiah, he refused to conform to their expectations. He announced he was the one through whom God's great reversal and restoration would come, but he refused to be their guy. Jesus had proclaimed good news for the poor, liberation for captives, recovery of sight for the blind, but he did no mighty works among those in his hometown. They had to content themselves with reports of other, from other villages of his mighty acts of power. And they were concerned that Jesus was neglecting his core constituency. He was forgetting his primary allegiance. And then, if you remember, Jesus antagonized them by hinting that maybe even godless pagans would experience God's glorious grace ahead of them. They saw it as a needless provocation provocation and they reacted with passion and they marched him up the hill and out of town and then as just as emotions start to crescendo apparently the fever mysteriously breaks and Jesus is able to pass through their midst unharmed and he he decamps for the nearby village of Capernaum which is where we're going to spend our time this morning Capernaum is this large Galilean village of about 1,500 people that's on the northern shore of a lake called Gennesaret, which is probably one of my favorite places on earth. I, uh, in graduate school, got to study abroad while my wife was eight months pregnant. I can't believe she let me do that. Um, in Israel and the Palestinian territories. And so I spent a portion of my summer on the lake of Gennesaret, we had a little uh, kibbutz hotel right there. I'd swim in the lake in the morning. So this place in particular, I love. And you might not know the Lake of Gennesaret. Uh, other gospels grandly call it the Sea of Galilee. But Luke is a North African medical doctor. He grew up on the coast of the Mediterranean. And this puddle is four miles wide and about eight miles long, and it seems it's a point of pride for Luke that he's not going to call any inland lake a sea when he grew up on the Mediterranean. So he calls it by its proper name, Lake Gennesaret. And this village of Capernaum, it is the hub of commercial fishing in the area. And though the town was decidedly blue-collar, it's a far more cosmopolitan, far more diverse place than Nazareth. This is because it sits at the intersection of a busy uh, crossing of trade routes. It's connecting in the south, Arabia, and that Transjordan region. And in the east, which is Syria and Mesopotamia, it's connecting those both to the ports 
on the Western Mediterranean that are in Egypt and Phoenicia, uh, modern-day Lebanon. So there's the world is passing through Capernaum, and it has colored the culture. And Jews actually considered the culture of this region to be compromised. They derogatorily called it Galilee of the Gentiles. But despite its questionable reputation, Jesus makes Capernaum his unofficial home base for the beginning part of his ministry. And this is what we read starting in verse 31. And Jesus went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. I find it interesting that Luke specifies that this is the spirit of an unclean demon. It's an acknowledgement that for his non-Jewish audience, that word demon doesn't carry negative connotations. Demon was a common term that Greeks and Romans used to speak of kind of the lesser deities and powers in their pantheon. Even the Greek philosopher Socrates used to say he, was, he spoke while being guided by a demon. And Luke needs his readers to understand that these spiritual entities are bad news. They evade the control of divine holiness and they're hell-bent on vandalism and corruption. They're ever eager to thwart God's purposes and to warp and to brutalize and to cripple those people that carry God's image. And Jesus rolls into town and he perceives their pernicious influence at work. And these spirits recognize Jesus as well as this person, this entity of great holiness and power and no longer hidden, they shriek and they cry out because Jesus is encroaching on their corner and they are powerless to resist him. He is far beyond their weight class. And Jesus, he quickly rebukes them and silences them and sends them packing. It's almost as if there's a new sheriff in town and their days of sowing destruction and afflicting the vulnerable are over. The territory is being purged and reclaimed for God. And then Jesus' Capernaum campaign continues in verse 38. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. If you go to Capernaum, you can actually see that they're right across from each other. The ancient synagogue of Capernaum and Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever and they appealed to him on her behalf, and he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. 
Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. Jesus continues to do the unexpected. The first up evil he uproots in town is in a place of worship. And his first healing, recorded in Luke's gospel, he performs in a way that crosses boundaries of propriety. For he heals a woman in the privacy of her own home. And in her book, Jesus Through the Eyes of Women, there's a scholar named Rebecca McLaughlin who's looked deeply at all of Jesus' interactions with women in the Gospels, and she's thought long and hard about this interaction with Peter's mother-in-law, and she has this great insight. She says, how do we see Jesus through this self-giving woman's eyes? We see him as the one who takes us by the hand and lifts, him, lifts us up. We see him as the one whose touch can instantly relieve our pain and as the one who serves us first before we ever have the power to serve him. It's a beautiful revelation of Jesus' heart here. But these scenes prompt a question. What role do exorcisms and healing play in Jesus' ministry? Why are they such a prominent role in the Gospels, and how do they relate to his proclaiming the reign of God? Well, first, I think these miracles are intended to reveal his authority. Jesus is announcing that God's leadership will be felt in real ways. It will be made tangible on the earth, and these Displays of power communicate that Jesus comes to this task with weight and gravity behind him. He comes with a rightful claim. He's not an upstart who's trying to kind of scratch out a name for himself in a hostile world. He is the landowner who's reclaiming what is his, who's driving squatters and bandits bandits off his inheritance. So I think these miracles are designed to reveal his authority. They also depict his mission. He had said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Jesus has come to make right in the world, to to bring freedom. And it's really interesting that he uses the same language when he's casting out a demon than when he's healing someone who is sick. It's the language of rebuke and release, right? But Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out having done him no harm. Rebuke and release. When he stood over her, he rebuked the fever and it left her. And immediately she began to serve. Something that should not be, something malicious and destructive is holding onto an individual or onto a community or onto a society. It's got it held in its sway. And Jesus 
says, I am here to uproot its presence, to break its power, to deliver the one who's held in bondage, bringing them out into an experience of abundant and thriving life, an experience of wholeness. And exorcisms and healings go hand in hand in the gospel, not because demons cause disease. Remember, Luke's a medical doctor. He's at the cutting edge of medicine in his day. But he knows that Jesus is an opponent of evil in all its forms, whether that's the spiritual evil of demonic oppression, the moral evil of human injustice, or natural evil of disaster and disease. It is his mission to release captives. It's also through these powerful acts of grace that Jesus meets people where they're at. I love that he does not meet us on like the level of some metaphysical or philosophical discussion, right? He doesn't start with giving us theological proofs for the existence of God. He meets us in our pain. He communes with us in the realities of our suffering. And these healings and these casting out demons, it's communicating to us that he sees us. We see him touching us, having compassion upon us. But he also brings relief. And then finally, I think these miracles have the power to evoke faith. These remarkable deeds have the capacity to validate Jesus and to show the source of his power. And faith can prompt a response. And actually, we're going to look at these responses to Jesus in the rest of this passage. So verse 42, and when it was day, Jesus departed. He went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So Jesus has revealed his authority. He's depicted his mission. He's met people where they're at. He's evoked faith among the people of Capernaum. And their first response is admirable. They seek Jesus. They pursue him. They search after him until they find him in his seclusion. But like the Nazarenes last week, the Galileans of Capernaum, they try to hold on to him, to claim him for their own ongoing benefit. And he has to remind them that he lives beneath a divine must. I must preach the good news of the kingdom. I must release captives. I must break down Satan's stronghold. I must uproot evil. I must rescue souls that are in bondage and make the world new. And unable to possess him or recruit him to serve their ends, the, the responsiveness to Jesus kind of just peters out. Their faith has been sparked, but it hasn't the, f the flame has not consumed them. 
It has not burned like a wildfire through their life. It does not change them. They've experienced a taste of God's grace, and then they return to their lives. But not everyone in Capernaum has that same response. We keep going. Chapter 5, verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Jesus has seemed to have inserted himself into Simon's life. He's been in his home. Remember, Simon's one of the many people who came to Jesus appealing to him to heal a loved one. Now Jesus has gotten his boat. He's utilizing it as this speaking platform. Outside of Capernaum, there's this little inlet that's like a natural amphitheater. So he seems to have gotten on the boat so he can project and utilize the natural acoustics of the environment. And now Jesus, who's a carpenter, a builder, a rabbi, he's instructing Simon and his crew to fish. Despite the bright sunshine, despite the fact that they've already cleaned their nets, And such a request, it'll mean more work and less rest. And if there's any fish out there, they should be able to see the net and swim away. Jesus's word promises futility. But Simon has this kernel of faith. He's heard his teaching. He's witnessed his healing at work in the life of his mother-in-law. So he chooses to heed Jesus' instruction. He chooses to respond with obedience. And when they had done this, verse 6, they had enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. These are small fishing boats. They're like 25 feet long, 7 feet wide, 4 feet deep. They found them stuck in the mud in the lakeshore from this era. They're powered by sails or oars, crewed by five men. These guys are using cast nets or drag nets, or sometimes they partner in corporation with another fishing boat so they can pull these big old, bigger trammel nets between them. They're here to catch carp and tilapia. In commercial fishing, it's not only... Simon's profession, it's his expertise. 
He's competent and and confident in this domain. But nothing has prepared him for a catch like this. It's so incredible that he almost loses everything. His nets, his boats, his life. The success is so great that it nearly sinks them. But this miraculous provision, it doesn't cause Simon to bubble over with gratitude, which is what I would expect. It elicits conviction and a touch of fear. Others in Capernaum have recognized Jesus' power, but Simon sees what they've missed, which is his utter holiness. One scholar puts it this way. He says, standing in the presence of the holy naturally evokes a response of unworthiness. A holy presence brings destruction to those who are unholy, and Simon's plea for him to depart acknowledges this reality. Simon all of a sudden realizes that he's in the presence of the divine. He calls him Lord, which is the thing Jews say when they're trying not to say the name of God, Yahweh. They call him Adonai, the Lord. And Simon blurts out that he's a sinner. Now in that culture, they define sinner in different ways, depending on which camp you fell into. The Pharisees, who are kind of the religious conservatives, they defined as a sinner, as someone who's distant from God and not deserving of his favor. The Sadducees, who are kind of the liberal elite who run Jerusalem, they defined as a sinner anyone who did not attend temple regularly, that did not fully participate constantly in the temple system and thus receive absolution for their sins. And here Simon is this rough-and-tumble, blue-collar fisherman. He's in far-off, semi-pagan Galilee He's part of the spiritual and social underclass of his people. And he's like, yep, I'm a sinner on both counts. I'm far from God and I don't regularly participate in the rituals of religion. Unlike everybody else, Simon does not assert a claim on Jesus. He shrinks back. But Jesus draws near. He's not come to drive sinners away from his holy presence, but to catch them alive in the net of his grace. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching alive men. And when they had brought their boats to land, he left everything and followed him. Jesus does not flee from sinners. He seeks them out. He recruits them. He saves them. He draws them into his mission and work. And I'm quite intrigued by that phrase, catching alive men or catching men alive. What do you think that word, that phrase means? Now, yes, I added the word alive to our translations, not because... It's not there. It's there in the Greek. But we don't put it there in the English for some reason. We like the cadence of 
You will fish for men. We like the, how it rings with that word fishermen for us. But Jesus says catching alive men. And I feel like not hearing that obscures the image that Jesus has given us. You will catch humans alive. Kind of t- turns the fishing metaphor on its head because sure, you fish are alive when you catch them, but the goal is to quickly kill them and eat them, right? Fishing more fittingly feels like a metaphor for judgment. Ha ha, I've caught you, you wriggling creature in my net, right? And now you will die. But that is not what Jesus is saying at all. To catch alive was not often associated with fishing. It was associated with warfare. It was to take a prisoner of war. Prepare to be paraded through the streets in chains. You'll either end your days in captivity or, to quote the princess bride, good work, sleep well, I'll most likely kill you in the morning. But that's not what he's saying either. They're not being captured as prisoners. They're not being fished for food. The image is perplexing and almost incoherent. And it should give us pause because it's alerting us to the type of fishing that Jesus is engaged in. Why would someone catch a fish alive? They don't keep pets in the ancient world. What do you think? Any thoughts? Imagine this scenario. Picture a pond that has been polluted. Maybe unethical corporations have long dumped chemicals there, or visitors have filled the waters up with trash and litter. Maybe several years ago, a crazed local fish enthusiast decided that their school of barracudas had outgrown their tank, and so they rehomed them into the waters of this pond. And so now the waters teem with this ferocious and rapacious non-native predator. What would it look like to catch fish alive in these waters? It would mean rescuing them from that corrupted environment and transporting them to a sanctuary, to a natural preserve of pure water where they can get healthy and be restored to wholeness, where they can learn to live again, where they can flourish and multiply. And I like this image because Jesus seems to depict himself both as one who is charged with bringing environmental restoration to the pond and he's the one who has the burden to rescue abused fish. Isn't this what Jesus has been doing so far in Capernaum? He's been cleansing the land of evil, uprooting it and undoing the devil's work. But he's also seeking after sinners like Simon. He's seeking to catch him alive in the net of his grace. And if you think my environmental metaphor is a bit of a stretch, I just want you to listen to the prophet Ezekiel's vision of the coming work of God. 
He foresaw an environmental restoration that is sparked by a a fountain of pure water that bubbles up from God's holy presence. And also notice what he has to say about the fish. So this is Ezekiel. He asked me, have you been watching, son of man? And then he led me back along the riverbank. And when I returned, I was surprised by the sight of many trees growing on both sides of the river. And he said to me, this river flows east through the desert into the valley of the Dead Sea. The waters of this stream will make the salty waters of the Dead Sea fresh and pure. There will be swarms of living things where the water of this river flows. Fish will abound in the Dead Sea, for its waters will become fresh. Life will flourish wherever this water flows. Fishermen will stand along the shores of the Dead Sea all the way from Engedi to Engalame. The shores will be covered with nets drying in the sun. Fish of every kind will fill the Dead Sea just as they fill the Mediterranean. What's he saying? Waters that are inhospitable to life are made whole. Fishermen stand besides drying their nets and the fish flourish and thrive. This is the type of fishing that Jesus is engaged in. And in this moment, Simon Peter has an epiphany. Jesus is doing something greater than anything he could ask for or imagine. Today, this fisherman's greatest fantasy has been fulfilled. He's daydreamed about a catch like this. It's the ancient equivalent of hitting the lottery. I'm sure he had tentative plans already sketched out in his mind. I'll pay off the house. I'll, I'll pay off the creditors. Maybe I'll get those new nets I've been looking at. Maybe we'll get a second boat. We'll take on another crew. Maybe I can pitch it to the wife that we can get the mother-in-law her own little place around the corner and down the block, just a little bit farther away. He's got his plans. Simon's dream hall is sitting there in his nets. And he turns from it, leaving it behind. Simon recognizes Jesus' authority. He's witnessed his power. And what's more, he's seen his heart. And it has sparked in him faith. But true faith requires a response. And Simon calls Jesus Lord. His focus has shifted from the gifts that are in front of him to the giver. You see, Simon Peter models for us not only belief, but an appropriate response to Jesus and his announcement that the reign of God is here. And a right response is the acknowledgement that God sent Jesus to do this mighty work and that he is worthy of being followed at all costs. Simon is thrilled with his mother-in-law's restoration with this incredible influx of grace and wealth. His ideal life is laying there right before him, but he realizes that even the deepest aspirations are lesser 
than what Jesus is up to. If he tried to enlist Jesus to his cause, if he tried to possess him, Simon's flimsy dreams and his self-serving plans would only stifle God's incredible love. It would only stunt the great work of restoration and healing and rescue that God yearns to do in the world. But Simon can't let Jesus go either. He's touched a live wire. He's discovered a bubbling stream of the purest, most wholesome, most life-giving water imaginable. And he can no longer content himself with lesser glories. He will leave his comfort, his plans, his dreams all behind to follow him. To join him in catching men and women, boys and girls alive. To experience that sort of life himself. Following Jesus is not the path to privilege, success, and a higher standard of living. But it is the path to Jesus himself. To knowing a truth so profound that it reorders the universe. To learning from him a special way of thinking and speaking and acting that it forms you into a renewed person. To experiencing a flourishing in God's love that transforms each and every moment of your life regardless of the circumstances happening around you. And establishes you for you an eternal future in God's love. But it's not just faith. It's not just belief. It's response. Will you leave it all behind for Jesus? Are you like the fans in Capernaum who loved him and appreciated him? But let him go. Or are you a follower like Simon? Guys, I am confident that this is true. Jesus has been pursuing each and every one of you. Like Simon, maybe you've met him at home. Maybe he has shown up in unexpected ways at work. Stop saying, hey, thanks, buddy. Instead, fall to your knees and respond. Acknowledge who he is and follow him at all costs. What he offers is something far greater than what you feel are your felt needs. He meets those too, notice. But that's not the only thing he has to offer. He has to offer himself renewal, everything. But it's not just faith, it's also response. Will you leave it all behind and follow him? 
So we're going to pray. But I want to invite you guys, if you have a prompting from the Lord, if you have realized that you've been more like the people of Capernaum, where you're like, I appreciate Jesus. I can recognize the good things he's done. And yes, the worship team can come forward. But you have not left it all behind to follow him. You've not received him. You've appreciated him. And Peter recognizes that sometimes it needs a tangible response. Sometimes it requires falling to your knees and calling him Lord. Sometimes it requires leaving things behind, getting your feet moving and following him. Jesus has been part of Simon's life for a while, but he had to choose to follow him, to act upon his faith, to obey and to pursue the Savior who had pursued him. So if you don't actually feel like you've left it all behind and followed him before, I'd encourage you to do something tangible, which is we're going to invite some folks up to the front, uh, Ryan and Jeff and Darlene, to pray for you and with you. If God's prompting you to make that tangible response to follow him and leave it all behind, do it. Come to the front and let us pray for you and bless you and confirm you in that decision. He's been pursuing you from the moment you were in your mother's womb. He showed his heart. He's revealed himself. But you have to respond. So today as we sing, come forward and leave it all behind and follow him.